0: The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court.
1: Good morning, everyone. Our first case is NC, NAACP versus Moore et al. We'll hear from the appellant.
0: Thank you, and good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. I'm Kim Hunter with the Southern Environmental Law Center representing the North Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. I'm with me at least remotely as Herb Joyner from the NAACP, Caitlin Swain from Forward Justice, and David Neal with the Southern Environmental Law Center. And I would like to reserve eight minutes of time for rebuttal. Your Honors, the NAACP comes to this court to ask it to fulfill its longstanding role in protecting our state constitution. In 2018, the North Carolina General Assembly placed constitutional amendments on the ballot, but it was only able to achieve the supermajority necessary to do so because it relied on votes from illegally, racially gerrymandered districts, districts that did not represent the people of North Carolina. We asked this court to make clear that that act violated the Constitution and declare the challenged amendments void ab initio. Defendants' actions violated the requirement in our Constitution that constitutional amendment can occur only through the will of the people and via a strict two-step process. The first step, a three-fifths supermajority requirement in both houses of the legislature has long guarded against the more fleeting interests that sometimes govern regular legislation. And this supermajority requirement makes certain that constitutional amendment reflects consensus in North Carolina and protects minority interests. The two-step process ensures compliance with the promise in our Declaration of Rights that it is the people of North Carolina who have the inherent Sole and exclusive right of altering their Constitution. Now, it was respect for this important constitutional requirement that was recognized by Judge Collins in the trial court and embraced by Judge Young in his dissent in the Court of Appeals. By contrast, neither of the two majority opinions in the Court of Appeals pay deference to these constitutional provisions.
1: Counselor, why, why is it inappropriate to say that the will of the people was determined at the ballot box? Some would argue that our Constitution uh, is too difficult to amend because the people themselves have to go through the first step, General Assembly, second step uh, at the ballot box. And in fact, uh, six amendments were proposed. People rejected two, but adopted four. Why can't we assume that the will of the people has been decided by the ballot box?
0: Well, thank you, Your Honor. Respectfully, as I believe you yourself have made clear, the will of the people is uh, written in our Constitution and reflected in the language of the Constitution. And Article uh, 13 makes clear that we can only amend our constitution via this strict two-step process. And the first part of that process is and always has been for as long as we have had constitutional amendment in North Carolina, the strict requirement of a three-fifths majority in the State House and in the State Senate. And in that way, we ensure that we're not just uh, using our constitution, the way we use ordinary legislation to reflect whatever the fleeting um, ideas of a simple majority might be.
1: You know, it's possible that we could have said, well, we'll we'll propose a constitutional amendment or put a constitutional amendment on the ballot, let people vote. And then we'll let the general assembly be the ultimate check. We didn't do that. We said, we're going to let the. Supermajority in the General Assembly make that determination, but the ultimate check, the ultimate check is with the people. Uh, why should we discount uh, or undervalue the vote of the people?
0: Your Honor, I don't believe we should undervalue the vote of the people, and nor do I believe we should undervalue that important first step. And we have always had, since um, 1835, when we first thought about constitutional amendment, we've always required that first step. Uh, other states do have just a simple majority, but what we have always said is first, the legislature which debates, considers, and drafts constitutional amendment needs to do so in this way where there is a full supermajority in both houses. And in that way, we can protect minority interests and we can ensure that constitutional amendment. Is something which reflects the people of North Carolina.
1: Would you agree that there is no intellectually honest way to separate the two amendments that you have not challenged, which have to do with victim rights and hunter rights, uh, to separate the enactment of those constitutional amendments from the ones that you do challenge?
0: Yes, Your Honor, I would agree that there is no difference between those four amendments. The only difference being that the North Carolina NAACP had standing to challenge constitutional amendments related to the income tax cap and to voter ID. The North Carolina uh, NAACP does not have any demonstrated interest or commitment to those other amendments.
2: Along those lines, um, can I ask you about the findings of fact in the trial court's order and specifically um, paragraphs 31, 32, and 33, um, which is on page 187 and 189 of the record. Didn't um, the trial court find that these two particular amendments would have an irreparable impact on the right to vote of African Americans in North Carolina? That the spending cuts have resulted in the, um, that the income tax uh, cap. Resulted in spending cuts that disproportionately hurt public schools or significantly reduced funding for communities of color. Are
0: those were those findings of
2: fact challenged on appeal?
0: No, Your Honor, they were not. And NAACP has never standing has never been challenged by the defendants.
2: But don't those findings of fact relate to the question of whether or not a general assembly that was that was elected from districts that. Were found to be intentionally racially discriminatory against Black voters, uh, should be able to pass constitutional amendments that also discriminate against Black voters.
0: Uh, It's it certainly is related, Your Honor, and this is precisely why the NAACP has standing to challenge those amendments, and it's related in this way that uh, Constitutional Amendment, of course, affects the rights of the people of North Carolina in a a way that is more fundamental than regular legislation. And It's for that reason that North Carolina has always required this three-fifths supermajority to pass Constitutional Amendment, which is not only difficult to pass, but it is very difficult to undo. So, unlike regular legislation, which could perhaps be fixed when uh, remedial districts had been drawn and constitutional districts were in place, could be fixed by a simple new majority of the legislature. Constitutional amendment can only be undone by another three fifths majority.
3: Council, so how do we juxtapose uh, to follow up on your uh, conversation with Chief Justice Newby? How do we juxtapose the will of the people coming behind the uh, legislature's placement of those constitutional amendments on the ballot with the fact that if those districts had not been drawn as they had been, there would not have been a super majority to be able to place those constitutional amendments on the ballot, presumably in the 1st place.
0: Yes, thank you, Your Honor. And and so the first part of, of this story is that the will of the people was not being reflected in those districts. And that's settled fact in this case. That's nothing that um, anyone disagrees with here that was made clear and final by the Covington Court, uh, by the United States Supreme Court. So we know with certainty that the districts at that time were not reflective of the people of North Carolina. And so it was then impossible for legislators when they had to pull from those districts that did not represent the people of North Carolina to achieve a three fifths majority in both houses. That was actually reflective of the people. Now, we have, there are very clear manageable standards that uh, this court can adopt um, to this uh, to uh, cabin in this argument. And the first one we've just been discussing about, the Superior Court's order focused only on a constitutional amendment, uh, not to regular legislation. But the other really important manageable standard here is that this only applies to a narrow period of time.
4: I'm oh, so, okay. sorry before you before you get there, uh, why would this uh, distinction between constitutional and regular uh, legislation be important?
0: Well, your honor, unfortunately, when this legislature was uh, in place illegally for this um, large period of time and not there reflecting the, the full will of the people, it engaged in a whole whole series of acts, including regular legislation um, and in- including constitutional amendments but it would certainly be very chaotic for uh, the, the court to come in and to say that every single act of this legislature had to be overturned. And so the court, as it always does, has to look for manageable standards and has to look, where is it most important that the court step in and protect our democracy? And the constitutional amendment is just so clearly distinct. It is, has distinct provisions in our state constitution, it is structurally different in how it is achieved, and it has a a, a different place in our law and that it is there to protect uh, fundamental rights, to set the fundamental laws of our states. And once it is in place, unlike regular legislation, it can't be declared unconstitutional under state law.
4: So, so un- under- I'm sorry. Under under your argument, if voter ID had passed the General Assembly and been signed into law by the governor, uh, your argument would fail.
0: Do you mean, uh, respectfully, Hon. Uh, is the question if there was regular legislation uh, that had been passed through the regular process to achieve it and,
4: and signed ID? by the governor that your your argument today would fail?
0: Well, that that would be a separate um, argument, Your Honor. If there was an argument about regular legislation and whether that was legitimate under a racially gerrymandered general assembly, that is not the argument before the court today. Well,
4: but but it's potentially an argument, right? Because uh, Justice Earls at one point signed a brief where she said that it was entirely possible that any legislative action, any legislative action uh, they take, the general assembly takes. Without being elected from legal districts could be subject to challenge. Under state law, so again, if that's the case, if any legislation uh, would be subject to challenge. um, isn't that problematic? Isn't that chaotic?
0: That is not the case, which is before the court today, and it is within this courts power of course to set clear, manageable standards. And make very clear that it is distinguishing between regular leg- legislation and constitutional amendment.
4: With with that argument that was made in the brief that I reference, would it not be legal malpractice not to advance that argument?
0: Your Honor, I did not. I I, I um, was not counsel there, and. That's, that is not the case which is before the court today. So it certainly would not be my legal malpractice to um, present a completely separate argument. But what the NAACP has announced, uh, pronounced here after you know careful thought and study and reference to our state constitution is that this court needs to declare that constitutional amendment is a step too far for an illegally racially gerrymandered general assembly.
4: Well, I, I understand your distinction, right? I, I'm trying to figure out where the law goes. If, if we make your distinction, right? So let's, let's assume hypothetically that uh, uh, in 2019, the legislature had passed a criminal statute uh, dealing with some sort of domestic violence. Uh, and uh, here today, uh, this court determines that um, your your argument is correct that uh, any constitutional amendment passed by the legislature uh, is. Void ab initio. Would not a criminal defense attorney uh, be engaged in malpractice if he didn't, in fact, advance an argument that the legislation for which his client was being tried for uh, fell into the same category that you're arguing today?
0: I don't believe so, Your Honor, and I believe this court certainly has the power to forestall that by making clear in its opinion that it is ruling only on constitutional amendments.
1: But let me ask you about uh, another situation where there, there's a required supermajority that arguably could impact um, uh, minority individuals or their voting, and that has to do with the budget. Uh, and the veto of the budget. Um, how is the supermajority required by vetoing the budget? How is that different than the supermajority required for the passage of a constitutional amendment?
0: Yes, thank you, Your Honor. Well, first of all, there's a very straightforward structural difference in that a supermajority required for a veto override is the supermajority of members present versus the supermajority of all members in the House and the Senate, so it's a less onerous requirement. But more importantly than that, one of the main differences structurally between constitutional amendment and regular legislation is how difficult it is to undo. Constitutional amendment is so enduring because you can't change it in the future unless you have another three-fifths majority. By contrast, something Regular legislation, like a budget can be easily changed in the future and, of course, is easily changed every year, every 2 years by whatever next majority comes into place. So they are they are structurally very different.
3: Council back to the substance of this case, uh, how should we look at as a court? the U.S. Supreme Court's procurium opinion that was rendered uh, concerning the uh, legislature's composition at the time that the constitutional amendments uh, uh, were on the verge of coming into play uh, relative to uh, what was done by the three judge panel here in terms of the actions that were ultimately taken by the legislature concerning the constitutional amendments.
0: Yes, Your Honor, well, what the, what the Supreme Court did was make clear um, in a very final way that this was a, an unconstitutional body. Um, of course, the three-judge panel explained more about that and um, both courts were very um, careful not to overstep onto state state sovereignty and address any questions about what power Um, The legislature would have in the intervening period and the three judge panel went out of its way to note that that question, the question of what power does a state legislature have in the time period between it being declared an illegal racial gerrymander and the time that remedial elections are held that period of time. The, the the three judge panels stated that that was an unsettled question of state law. And that is precisely the question that we are here to ask this court to answer today as the final arbiters of state law.
3: Why should we look at the fact though that the U.S. Supreme Court did not choose to act more uh, affirmatively in terms of what it said about this matter relative to the legislature's ability then in the dearth of the U.S. Supreme Court doing anything more to be able to go forward with constitutional amendment placement uh, on the ballot?
0: Well, again, I believe, Your Honor, there's a long history of federal court restraints on infringing on state sovereignty and state courts, and it's up to states like North Carolina to govern these types of questions about their own constitution. There was also at the same time a concern from the federal courts about in, infringing on state sovereignty about how it managed its own elections. So the federal courts did go out of their way to let uh, North Carolina have a role in that remedial process, but at no point um, did either of the, the courts, uh, the, the the panel or the Supreme Court, um, bless the idea that in this period where it had been adjudged and declared that these people, these legislators were not re- reflecting the people of North Carolina. Um, at no point did they say that uh, they were able to um, place constitutional amendment on the ballot.
2: And, and can I ask you about the other cases? Um, in the past that other, uh, courts have where other courts have been faced with what power does a legislature that has been unconstitutionally uh, constituted in terms of its districts? What power does it have Do any of those cases address the situation where the legislature at issue was attempting to amend um, the state's constitutional amend the constitution?
0: They do not, Your Honor. And to my knowledge, uh, this has never been an occasion that has occurred before. And so there is no law on this issue, either in North Carolina or anywhere else.
5: I have a quick question for you, I think. Um, How would you articulate the rule that you're asking us to um, enunciate here and its applicability perspective only from this case?
0: Yes, Your Honor, thank you. Uh, We would ask that this court declare that a North Carolina General Assembly cannot rely on votes from racially gerrymandered districts to achieve the supermajority necessary to amend the constitution. And we would further confine that by saying the court needs to only consider the time period after it has been fully declared that those legislative districts were an illegal gerrymander and not representative of the people of North Carolina.
5: Okay. I just wanna make sure that I understand the limits of what you're asking us to do, that it's only in that limited situation and not um, sort of to follow up from some of the other questions you were asking, it would not be your position that it could um, kind of go over into the category of other legislation Regardless
0: of what no, kind Your of majority. Honor. Okay. No, Your Honor. And I believe we've been very clear about that in our briefs um, and consistent about that. And that the trial court and the um, dissent and the court of appeals were all very clear on the limits of this argument and that it is focused only on constitutional amendment during that limited time period. And I will reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you.
4: Thank you. I hear from the appellate.
6: Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. My name is Martin Morph, and together with Noah Huffstetler, we represent the legislative defendants, President Pro Tim Berger and Speaker Moore. The members of the 2016 General Assembly were duly elected, sworn, and held office until new members were sworn in from the 2018 election. The question before this court, based on that undisputed fact, is whether the constitutional amendments the General Assembly proposed. And that were passed by the people of North Carolina are void because the General Assembly lacked popular sovereignty to act. The answer is no, and is why this court should affirm the Court of Appeals. Plaintiff argues that upon the 2017 determination by the U. S. Supreme Court that North Carolina's legislative districts were unconstitutionally drawn, that members elected under those districts lost popular sovereignty to act. The relief plaintiff seeks Striking two constitutional amendments is unprecedented and wrong for two primary reasons. First, the General Assembly never lost its authority to act, and its acts are not subject to an institutional attack. Second, whether the legislature has popular sovereignty is a political question, one that courts abstain from resolving. As to the first of these, The plaintiff argues that the mandate from the U.S. Supreme Court yielded a General Assembly without popular sovereignty, that the members of the General Assembly shifted from being a de jure or de facto body to one made up of usurpers. Our case law, North Carolina's case law, describes a de facto officer as one who has a supportable claim to a de jure office. You could see that most aptly when you compare Idol v state. To the Smith v. Town of Carolina Beach case, this court's precedent also notes in 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 Van Van Amridge that a usurper is one who undertakes an act officially without any actual or apparent authority, since he is not an officer at all for any purpose. His acts are absolutely void and can be impeached at any time in any proceeding. Against this backdrop of precedent we can judge the 2016 to 2018 General Assembly. The elections in 2016 were held before any Supreme Court order was entered, and there's no contention in this case that the election that there are any election issues with those elections other than the district boundaries for which those representatives came. When the let, me, let me ask
5: you, uh, sorry to interrupt you so early on, but um, you're not disputing that the Supreme Court Ultimately decided the question that the that these districts were a result of an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. Are you?
6: No, your honor uh, that that was a final determination from the US Supreme court.
5: And what, um, if any, um, remedy would. The defendants. Recommend here
6: uh, the remedy that. Would be recommended was that which was recommended by the, the federal district court, which was a redraw and uh, a redraw and then a new a new election based on the timing of the cycle for which that election was occurring the district court did not order a special election but allowed the legislators to stay in place and implemented new maps for the 2018 election and that is the appropriate remedy for a uh, a um gerrymandered situation. That's been the remedy since 1964 that we've seen all the way through um, even today.
5: Would you um, contend that the um, that the legislators elected under those unconstitutional um, districts um, did reflect the will of the people of North Carolina?
6: Yes, Your Honor, but that's not necessarily my word for that. Um, that is the holdings of the U.S. Supreme Court um in Baker v. Carr itself, which established that there was a right to challenge an equal protection uh, claim based on improper gerrymandering. The legislature Douglas, Justice Douglas's concern concurrence noted that a legislature elected under unfair apportionment is nonetheless a legislature empowered to act. The 10th Circuit has held the same thing, and the U.S. Supreme Court has repeated that holding. Um, through the years that it's dealt with improper uh, redistricting.
5: Are those holdings actually- regarding amending um, state constitutions or regular legislation?
6: Those holdings deal with what I believe to be regular legislation in each of those states. I would agree with the plaintiff that we have not necessarily uncovered a case where a constitutional amendment was proposed, but I don't necessarily think that's a distinguishing factor. Because each of those cases have determined that the legislature has its full constitutional authority to act and no, in no case has a, has a court enjoined a legislature from acting or has determined that it has less than the constitutional authority given to it by the people of North Carolina, or the people of the states in those that uh, the courts have reviewed. Um, So, I don't think that it is particularly distinguishable that this involves an amendment. Where other cases involve legislation, because it always each case always dealt with the constitutional authority of the legislature to act, and we know that this this court or in sorry that this general assembly in 2016 maintained that uh, constitutional authority because the plaintiffs argued for a special election and to cut short terms of those 2016 legislators so that a new election and new members could be proposed. The federal district court determined that it was too late in the game under equitable circumstances to allow that to happen and noted at the beginning of its opinion that those legislators would continue to serve in office and did not. So,
3: how should we regard the fact as a court here that the only reason why the legislature was still able to be in position to act is because there was not sufficient time to redraw the maps otherwise with redrawn maps. It can be reasonably presumed that the legislature would not have been in that position to act.
6: Well, I think that might be a, a hypothetical. We saw that when the uh, maps were redrawn in 2018 and the elections held under those maps, uh, neither party maintained a supermajority in the legislature. However, there was no indication from the court at that time that the legislature lacked any of its constitutional authority to act. And there's been discussion by members of this court as to whether that constitutional authority would go to regular acts of legislation um, or amendments. And I would submit to you that a um, that the proposal of the amendments, uh, because it had involves the check of the people and the and the, the fact that the amendments only become amendments to our constitution by a direct vote of the people. Those situations are actually warrant less concern from the court than in fact, potentially even regular legislation. Because when the General Assembly proposes a constitutional amendment to the people, that is simply a proposal to the direct vote of the people in no districts whatsoever, statewide. And that's but,
3: but, but again, the fact that the US Supreme Court had said uh, in its ruling that these were illegally uh, constituted legislative districts, then the fact that the legislature went ahead and acted in the dearth of the opportunity for there being enough time to redraw these districts. Doesn't that somehow uh, import uh, a. A a concern as to the actions of doing something as extreme as constitutional amendments being placed on the ballot.
6: Your honor, I don't believe so for 2 reasons 1. Again, there was no uh, check on the constitutional authority of the general assembly. They could have proposed local bills. If they met otherwise met with the constitution, they could have proposed constitutional amendments. They could have proposed um, any act necessary to uh, govern the people of North Carolina, which they did, and which, in fact, as some justices have pointed out included the need to override a gubernatorial veto to ensure that that act became law, which was by 3 fifths of of the of the members of the general assembly, then the other point I would make to that, your Honor, is that there are oftentimes, not only in just the legislature where there might be some sort of lame duck exercise of power, but that occurs in all three branches of government. Anytime you have an election that the governor loses, you may see in the last months of November or December, them pardon people that they would not have pardoned earlier in the year. And even on this court, if a justice loses an election in November, they are still on a court and making uh, their opinions known from November and December. So there's no question that it's not a concern about when an indication happens. There's going to be a change in the future, because each time, whether you're in the executive legislative or judicial branch, those actions are constitutionally um, uh, done. Uh, Council,
4: if council, if I may, um, you would agree that uh, popular sovereignty must reside somewhere, would you not? Yes, Your Honor. And if uh, your friend on the other side is correct, that uh, the legislature lost its popular sovereignty to propose amendments, who would have had popular sovereignty at that point to propose amendments for the people to vote on?
6: I believe under the uh, under my friend Ms. Hunter's theory, uh, there would have been nobody that – no elective body that could have done that, which I think shows. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Uh, which shows, I think, the fa- fallacy of the argument because, in a de facto or de jure setting, uh, usually, you, like we have here in this legislature, there was no other members of the legislature or people who lost election that were trying to get into Jones Street. We only had the one legislature. And you can see that. When we have just the 1 legislature, you can see that that legislature retains popular sovereignty and you can see that most clearly even looking back all the way to the U. S. Supreme court's decision in home insurance, which reviewed a situation where laws were passed by the state of Georgia after Georgia seceded from the union. Once it rejoined the union, those laws were challenged in the U. S. Supreme court as being unconstitutional. Because they did not involve, they did not involve an oath of office by those legislators to the Constitution, and the court said it does not follow from this that it was not a legislature. That the acts of which were of force when they were made are in force now. If not a legislature of the state, the jure, it was least a legislature de facto. It was the only lawmaking body which had any existence. Its members acted under color of office by election. Though not qualified according to the requirements of the Constitution of the United States and we can see that, um, expressed even then in those early days and all the way forward through today. When, when there are equitable concerns about an election, the U. S. Supreme Court and other courts have delayed implementation of new maps and allowed those legislators to continue serving through the end of their term. And so here, because that occurred, we know that the North Carolina Constitution creates the legislature, so there's no question about its de jure status. None of these amendments created a new body, um, but the legislature was created in the Constitution. The members were elected in 2016 under valid law at that time. And they were not, they did not assert the rights of others, but they held them for their own. And those members were not removed early by special election. Therefore, they retained their constitutional authority to act until the end of their terms, and never lost their de facto status. And I would like to point out that courts use the doctrines of authority um, do, to pick, do not choo- do so to pick and choose which laws to uphold, and that's why the Court of Appeals was right in holding that it is not a dimmer switch or a spectrum. But an on off. You're either alive or you're dead. You either have popular sovereignty to act and your laws are subject to de facto status or they are not. And you can see this most clearly in the Dawson v. Bowmeyer case from the Sixth Circuit. In that case, the criminal defendant was arguing simply that the laws um, allowing additional crimes to be subject to the death penalty should be set aside, and all the other laws of the malapportioned General Assembly should be um, upheld. And the court there rejected that theory and noted that the purpose of both the de facto doctrine and the doctrine of avoidance of chaos and confusion would be defeated if the judiciary could be called upon to adjudicate respective equities between the parties and the complaint, I'm sorry, between the public and the complaining party as to any specific act. And here, that is what the plaintiff is asking you to do, is distinguish between acts of the General Assembly for which there was popular sovereignty and acts of the General Assembly for which there was not popular sovereignty.
2: So, so I, I understand that you believe there's no distinction or at least no, um, constitutionally significant distinction between. Acts of the General Assembly that are regular acts, just requiring a majority and those that require a supermajority um such as amending the constitution but i want to ask about a slightly different type of distinction um, because you've argued to us that there's no check on the constitutional authority of the general assembly but isn't it what what significance do we make of the fact that particularly with regard to voter id this constitutional amendment was passed after a previous law passed by the general assembly was found by federal courts to be intentionally a previous voter ID law was found by the courts to be intentionally racially discriminatory. Doesn't that put the effort to impose a voter ID um, by a general assembly that was elected by districts that are racially discriminatory in a, in a different category?
6: Uh, Thank you, Justice Earls. I don't believe it does. Um, For instance, on page 8 of the plaintiff's reply, They know that they are actually not arguing the substance of the amendments, but the authority to propose the amendments. Um, so I think it is, um, incorrect to judge 1 amendment based on its substance or its import when, as, um, just chief justice Newby pointed out. 6 amendments were proposed um, two did not make it and 4 did. Um, so I think you'd have to look at the collective body there and see that, um. There were more than more amendments than just that and I don't want to say that there isn't a check on uh, the constitutional authority of the general assembly. That's not exactly true as this court has held numerous times um, when reviewing the laws itself that the general assembly passes. This court is the ultimate arbiter of whether those laws passed are subject to um, constitutionality. So, if, if, for instance, Justice Earls, there is an entire separate lawsuit um, that is proceeding forth in the federal court and the state court about the voter ID bill that implemented this constitutional amendment. And that might be a situation, so warranted, where the court would have authority potentially to look over that and see whether that law is constitutional. But this challenge actually is to the institution itself. Saying that the institution that the body did not have constitutional authority to act and that is very, very different from looking at the substance of any single act. And it's why we don't believe that there are any manageable standards for answering that particular question. When you look at back uh, to this court's case in Leonard V. Maxwell. uh, There, the plaintiff was arguing about a tax refund and argued that the tax was discriminatory, arbitrary, and passed by a malapportioned general assembly. In reviewing those arguments, this court noted that it was a political question. And the plaintiff argues that that case reflects a political question because apportionment itself at that time was a political question that the courts had not engaged in. But the plaintiff in Leonard was not asking for apportionment. he was simply asking that a law be held unconstitutional because it was passed by a malapportioned General Assembly, which is basically the same argument we have here. He was attacking the validity of the institution that passed the statute. And we can see that the US Supreme Court, even in Baker, made note that it is still a political question when one attacks a statute in that manner. We saw that in the Illinois case cited, in the Hawaii case cited, and it most readily. Uh, is is similar to the specific case, the specific states case in the U.S. Supreme Court about how the, a manner of a statute is passed. In that case, the U.S. Supreme Court, interpreting the guarantee clause, noted that um, it was, it was not going to discern whether it was a republican form of government or not that passed an Oregon tax by referendum. Doesn't
3: the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in looking at the legislature being illegally constituted, uh, determined as it did, doesn't that take it beyond the realm, then, for our court of being beyond just a mere political question?
6: No, I I don't think so. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court and federal case law interpreting this question is important because the plaintiffs um, and the trial court and the dissent all rely on a federal case. They rely on a mandate from the US Supreme Court that the General Assembly was improperly drawn. And from that federal court case, they extrapolate the idea that there was a loss of popular sovereignty and the General Assembly um, lost its authority to act. So I don't think that the federal decisions, including the US Supreme Court case, is irrelevant to this. In fact, I think you can glean some persuasive and very uh, helpful analysis from that, um, that that anytime a court has faced this decision, a court has always come down on the fact that it does not have the ability to pick and choose which laws are constitutional and which ones are not.
7: Mr Mr. war to follow up on what I think was at least part of what justice Morgan asked you the. Colleague Ms. Hunter, when she was asked by Justice Hudson what her standard that she was seeking to propose for our consideration was, and she drew a very distinct difference between constitutional amendments and statutes. I know you've talked about this somewhat already, but please tell me as directly as you can why you would contend that constitutional amendments and ordinary statutes should not be treated differently.
6: Your honor, um, they certainly have a different impact. That's that's absolutely granted. But for the purposes of this analysis of popular sovereignty, maintained or constitutional authority by the general assembly. It is our position that they, there is no constitutional distinction between those 2, um, because, in fact, as pointed out by chief justice, Newby, the budget passed in in, uh, 2018, uh, or in 2017. I'm sorry was, uh, uh, passed by a three-fifths majority, there were also at least twenty more acts passed by the General Assembly pursuant to a three-fifths majority. Plaintiff is uh, the plaintiff is articulating a clear uh, ruling that they want two amendments to be stricken, but they have not articulated a very workable standard for this court to apply. And for let me
5: let me let me follow up on that a little bit. Um, if, as I understand your argument, there's no Check on the authority of the general assembly that was um, undoubtedly illegally constituted, at least in terms of whether the districts were legally drawn under the constitution. Um, As I understand your argument, there's, there's no limit on the authority of a general assembly elected under those districts to pass either statutes or constitutional amendments. Um, Is that, am I understanding that correctly?
6: Yes, your honor that there's, there's no, um, there's no question of constitutional authority to act any purpose. Yes.
5: Okay, so what remedy would you suggest would be available to the voters, um, affected by the unconstitutional gerrymandered districts.
6: I think it's the very remedy that they exercise in this case, which is their right to vote for or not pass the amendment. 6 amendments were proposed two failed. 2 amendments were, were dealing with, um, the appointment of justices and, um, um, a bipartisan election and an ethics enforcement commission and those amendments failed on direct vote of the people. So, we're only dealing with the 4 amendments that passed by a vote of the people, and that is an ultimate check on the authority of, of all branches of government because they hold the popular sovereignty. Um, and you can given
5: given that that in our history, um, constitutional amendments are rarely if ever undone. Um, how realistic is that as a check or balance on the, um, actions of a legislature? That's not constitutionally. Um, composed
6: well, I think it's the best check that we could possibly have, um, to to propose that uh, question directly to the people for a vote. Um, well, typically,
5: in, in, under our system, if one of the branches—the executive or, or legislative branches—acts beyond the, the authority of the Constitution, it would be the role of the courts to to step in and um, opine on the constitutionality of that. Correct?
6: Yes. As to any specific law, yes, Your Honor.
5: And so, what would what would be available here?
6: Well, Your Honor. The, what what we're saying was available was a um, redraw of the maps and implementation of election, and that is the typical and standard remedy for uh, a a uh, electorate body that has been improperly constituted.
5: Well, the as Justice that that Morgan point as Justice Morgan pointed out, the the reason that wasn't done here was because of the shortage of time, and given that um, the shortage of time made that remedy unavailable. Is it your position that there would be no other um, remedy available? Or check on the authority um, of the general assembly. In that period,
6: your honor, I've not seen any case that would hold that there is a, a, the court's ability to check a coordinate branch of the government's ability to act under its constitutional authority. Um, if it is improperly gerrymandered, then a court could examine. How quickly um, new maps could be passed and be implemented as a uh, sanction for um, a redistricting violation. But there's no, there's been no case or uh, that's ever no court that's ever held that a court can uh, stop the general assembly from acting or constrain. It's constitutional authority Um, once and, and that's basically from the top on down. We've never seen that in this court and we've never seen that in any court. Um, across the country, and the reason for that, I think, is because when you look at the de facto doctrine, even under this state's law, the court does not necessarily pick and choose which laws had authority and which did not. Um, It is basically that there was constitutional authority to act and therefore you can look at the law itself that was passed um, as this court is doing from that time period and may do still into the future. Um, but there isn't necessarily the ability of the court to say that the legislature can, or cannot do a particular function, which the constitution gives it authority to do. But, but well, uh,
5: if you, if. Uh, oh. I'm sorry, go ahead, Justice go
2: no, ahead. Um, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Um, my question is to follow up on this, um, argument that no court has ever, um. Ruled this way, but, but we know that that no court has been faced with this situation where, um, a a general assembly has tried to amend the constitution and as I understand the cases that have looked at what legislatures can, um, do when they are. Once it has been finally determined that they are not constitutionally um, created, or, or they're elected from unconstitutional districts has been on the basis of the. The sort of chaos and problems that would result if they could not act at all, but but I don't uh, how does that rationale apply to a constitutional amendment? There's there's no, um, immediate urgency to amend the state constitution that that would, um, mean that the legislature having to wait until it is constitutionally constituted uh, to act. So how does that rationale apply in these um, completely unprecedented circumstances?
6: Well, your honor, I I would not know or pretend to to determine what was in the immediate need of the legislature. I think that's for the legislature to determine um, and not for me or the court to decide. But in that situation, your honor, when you're talking about the proposal of constitutional amendments, um, the, the amendment, the constitution is not amended by a sole act of the General Assembly. It is amended by an act of the people and the people exercise that right here, and will continue to exercise that right anytime an amendment is proposed. So here we can see that they rejected two and adopted 4 of, of the amendments that they had. And that is an ultimate check on that power to propose constitutional amendments, which, in fact, is not even present, if you will, um, in a situation where the general assembly in and of itself. Can potentially override a gubernatorial veto based on the same majority and we saw that occur at least 20 or more times during the same time period. Um, But
2: you wouldn't you wouldn't say that the fact that the public has the 2nd step of the process means that it's okay for the general assembly not to follow the 1st step of the process under the state constitution.
6: Would you? I I would agree with that your honor, but the the question here, I mean, what occurred here was there's absolutely no dispute that 3 fifths of each house passed these amendments on to the people. There's no question about that. What we are questioning is whether that body that made those 3 fifths vote lacked popular sovereignty to do that. And no court has ever held that. That's the case. In fact, because. The exercise of the doctrines that we're talking about the de facto doctrine or the chaos and confusion doctrine, those doctrines have been exercised to protect the authority of a body to act, not to say that it won't create com- it won't create confusion. If we set aside this particular act, it's to say that it will create chaos and confusion. If we get into that issue at all, and your honor, I see that my time is about to expire. So let me conclude. By noting that these proposals were proper enactments of the general assembly, and that the 2016 general assembly retained the right to act and enact until the end of its members terms, just like the 2020 general assembly retains. It's right to act until the end of 2022 to go behind that and question the sovereignty of the institution is not a subject matter that courts get into to quote Ryan v. Tinsley. Nothing in Baker v. Carr intimates that a legislature elected from districts that are invidiously discriminatory in violation of the 14th Amendment is without the power to act. The trial court was the first and only court to hold as such, and this court should affirm the Court of Appeals decision that reversed the trial court. Thank you.
1: Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal.
0: Thank you. Um, Mr. Wharf stated there that no court has ever said um, that this legislature lost popular sovereignty, but that is in fact precisely what Judge Wynn stated writing for the majority, writing for the panel um, in the Covington case. It stated that North Carolina, North Carolina had lost popular sovereignty during this time period. And this was in the context of looking at the question of how quickly can we have remedial elections in North Carolina so that we can restore sovereignty to the people, which is where popular sovereignty resides, is within the people of North Carolina. And unfortunately, largely because of delay tactics that the legislative defendants had used, there was not time for immediate remedial elections. And so we were unfortunately left with this time period where North Carolina was represented um, by these districts that did not represent the people of North Carolina. And that legislature was on notice that during this time period, the federal panel had not only stated that North Carolina had lost its sovereignty, but also that the legislature was on notice that it might not have unlimited authority to act and that that was an unsettled question of state law.
1: Yeah, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. When these amendments were passed by the General Assembly to be put on the ballot, there was litigation about uh, what language these amendments uh, should have. Correct.
0: Correct, Your Honor.
1: Uh, I don't know When you were part or your organization with it. Y'all are part of that litigation.
0: That was a part of this case, Your Honor. And I appreciate that. The, the question that was. This case was running parallel. And to clarify, this case was filed before amendments were ever placed on the ballot.
1: So, um, was there uh, a request that uh, there be an injunction or a stay with regard to placing these items on the ballot?
0: There was, Your Honor, and that's why I'm a little surprised at defendant's arguments here um, because what Mr. Wharf, arguing for the legislature stated during that time was there's no need for injunctive relief because what we can do later the election can go ahead and we can simply discount the votes of the people if we ultimately find that these amendments were placed on the ballot illegally. And so it's it's strange now to hear Mr. Wharf come in and say that actually that vote somehow validated the earlier illegal act when he previously stated that we could just throw those votes out.
1: Did the trial court deny the relief?
0: The trial court um, denied the injunction, uh, except as to the two constitutional amendments, which were uh, later rewritten. Um, and then the case was heard again in the trial court on summary judgment.
1: Was, was the injunctive relief denial appealed to this court?
0: Well, it, it was a complicated technical question, Your Honor, because what the trial court, the three-judge panel court actually said during that time was that a three-judge panel didn't have authority to look at this question and that it was a question that needed to go to um, a, an individual judge, and this court didn't uh, didn't produce any written opinion, so it's unclear exactly as to what this court was ruling on, but certainly um, it did not provide injunctive relief at that time.
1: So um, this argument was previously made, and this court did not provide um, relief.
0: It, again, before, before the election. Again, it's unclear exactly what um, this what arguments this court heard. Whether it even thought it had jurisdiction to hear arguments at that time, um, but yes, no relief was granted.
1: But and- but but it, the issue was presented the injunctive relief. In other words, uh, uh, it's improper to place these uh, uh, amendments on the ballot uh, because of the. Uh, racial gerrymander uh, found by the federal court. Uh, this issue was presented to the court, and the court, this court did not grant relief.
0: That issue, a number of issues, including uh, appeal of those earlier procedural um, arguments that were made by the lower court, were presented. And to get to remedy, Your Honor. Well, before, before you do that, it, before yeah. you do that Hunter,
7: let me ask you one more. Question to go back to your earlier discussion with Justice Hudson about your standard, the standards you propose. I know you're running out of time, and I'll try to talk quickly. Is the issue of is your argument that any constitutional amendment, regardless of the vote in the General Assembly, would be invalid under these circumstances, or does your standard involve an analysis of uh, on amendment by amendment basis of whether a particular uh, amendment would have been submitted for ratification?
0: Yes, thank you, Your Honor. I I believe our standard states that the legislature can't rely on votes from unconstitutional districts to achieve that three fifths majority to then place that amendment on the ballot. Does that answer your question, Your Honor?
7: So, does that in, in the event that you, a sufficient number of districts are implicated in the underlying illegality that would prevent? The submission of any amendment, regardless of the vote in the General Assembly?
0: That's correct, Your Honor. And here, where two thirds of the districts had to be redrawn, that bar was um, unfortunately easily met. And I do just want to speak to remedy because the defendants here um, state that there is no check on their power during that time and no remedy um, to plaintiffs. By contrast, the legislature really was not harmed here. Uh, the NAACP is not asking the court to strip the legislative branch of all power to pass constitutional amendments. And if this legislature wanted to go and place photo voter ID on the ballot today, um, it absolutely has the authority to do that under legal districts and could have done that um, immediately upon remedial districts being seated. So, the the people of North Carolina are really harmed here and the legislature is saying they have no remedy by contrast. The legislature is not is not harmed at all. Um, And I do want to touch briefly on the idea that this is somehow similar to a lame duck. Uh, These are legislators that never had power in the 1st place. So they're not the same as a a lame duck governor who has been voted in by the people and empowered to act Um, to pick up on the, the question of these previous cases. Again, none of no previous cases have ever spoken to this question of constitutional amendment. And of course, there are reasons that a legislature needs to continue to act. There is absolutely no reason a legislature needs to act to amend the constitution and we've heard all sorts of hypotheticals here from the defendants about how bad things could get. We have seen in North Carolina precisely how bad things can get when a racially gerrymandered legislature is allowed to run amok and abuse its power and it's the dying days of its power and uh, for that reason we ask that you uphold the ruling of the superior court and ruled that a racially gerrymandered General Assembly cannot rely on those racially gerrymandered districts to achieve the supermajority necessary. To amend them. Thank
1: you council. Thank you council. Uh, Madam. Flirt.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 15 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.